Hello, thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. For network or show information, visit byteradio.me or call 843-808-0777. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my very special guest is Margie Thompson, and we'll be talking about her book, uh, Finding Color in the Darkness, Losing My Son to Bipolar Disorder. Margaret Thompson's Finding Color in the Darkness is a report from the front lines of the battle against mental health disorders. Her son, John Fish, is a bright young boy growing up in an average American town, going to school, playing with his brother, and walking his dogs on the beach each day. He grows into adolescence, and slowly a dark sky seems to settle over him. He is complicated, sensitive, and growing more silent every day. His mother knows the disaster is looming, but her attempts to reach her son go unrecognized, and this page-turning memoir reaches its devastating conclusion. Too late, John is enveloped in a love he seemed to never be able to reach as his family and friends gather to say their goodbyes. Margaret Thompson began her career in New York City at MTV. She married and left to raise her two boys, Tim and John, ultimately finding the calling of her life teaching. Since the loss of her son, John, to suicide, she has dedicated her herself to educating others about the importance of focusing on mental health as a medical and potentially fatal condition. Um, you can find Margie on, Margie, excuse me, Margie on Facebook at Finding Color in the Darkness. So that, uh, I'd like to welcome Margie to the show. Good day. Hi, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And um, I have to say, uh, just reading like the first page of your book, <laughs> I I like, <laughs> teared up. I was just like, oh my gosh, oh. this is a what a start to a to a book. But um, you know, oh, thank you. It's uh, yeah. Well, you know, I'm always um, you know amazed at people who come forth, you know, and really do expose a part of their life, a very personal part of their life, you know, for the world to see and, and discuss and for you to discuss continually, you know, as you go through and, and talk about the book. So yeah. would you mind kind of sharing with us, with us uh, you know, why, you know, how it is you got to the point of deciding to write the book and, and why you, you feel that you wanted it written? Um, well, I really felt compelled to do it because I, it took me a long time to understand my son's illness. And I, I'm such a positive person by nature and I sort of believe the old adage that the happiness is a choice and that you can um, just choose to be positive and overcome whatever obstacles you might face in life. And my son, John had so much joy as a child and, and you know, there were dark periods that entered into his late mid late teen years, but it really took a long time for me to accept the fact that this was larger than, than him and that he could not control his emotions and I witnessed it, but I still wouldn't absorb it quite until toward the end. And then it became painfully clear that this was an illness that was just like cancer, that you, you couldn't watch it. It was growing bigger and, and getting worse and spreading, and that there was no stopping it. So 
I felt compelled to educate people about what this is. And I, for after he died, I looked for, um, you know, stories, personal stories from people who had lost someone to suicide, lost particularly a child to suicide. And I couldn't find anything that really satisfied my craving for um, a personal uh, in-depth uh, um, memoir of this person and what they endured and their perceptions and having looked at it from a, a lens of a parent and, and having a close relationship with that child and what that looked like and, and what efforts they made to help save their child. And I also felt that I had failed to, to properly understand John's illness in a timely manner that could have perhaps saved him. And I, mm. I don't know if I could have saved him, but I could have at least felt better about how I responded to his illness and, and that I could have been more proactive. So I couldn't do that then, but I, I had to do something. And I think when you lose a child or you have profound loss, you, you have to find meaning if you're going to move forward in life. And for me, finding that meaning is, is by telling my story in order to help others understand what I could not and did not in, in a timely yeah. manner so that they can help prevent um, a suicide. Yeah, because quite um, honestly, isn't now, I mean, in this time period, there are just, the suicide rate is just um, skyrocketing. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's epidemic. I mean, it is, it's the second largest killer now in the United States between the ages of 10, for 10 and between 10 and 34 year olds. And it's, it killed more people than uh, people died of AIDS during the height of the epidemic in 2017 and it killed more people than died of breast cancer in the same year. So it's, it's becoming yeah. a very scary thing and, and social media certainly and, and um, technology is having a, a negative uh, impact upon teenagers who are not, their minds are not yet developed and making it more impulsive than it used to be. Suicide has typically not been impulsive. It's usually the result of, of uh, long-term mental illness, but now uh, right. when, you, when you're talking about teenage brains that haven't fully developed, when they have all these attacks that become viral, that changes the way their neurotransmitters are functioning in their brains and has a chemical reaction that can lead to, you know, devastating consequences such as suicide. So, yeah. scary. Plus, yeah, plus there's that um, the uh, real decrease in um, personal connection. You know, I mean, so much of it Absolutely. is... Yeah, cyber, yep. and, and that that's, that's you, another piece. You you kind of lose if you lose that uh, connection to relationships. Then you know, moving on to the is less of a deal. I mean, you you really don't. Oh, think absolutely. That that. Yeah, um, they did. They've done studies too about with babies. Um, they did it actually in France. Babies that had smartphones or tablets, they studied their brain um, functions and. They were not as activated as babies who were read to, and just that mm. not just having a parent hold child reads is the connection um, that you get from a human being. And I remember getting my master's in education. We studied Reese's monkeys that had three different mm -hmm. scenarios. One was um, they had a, a metal cage with a bottle, so the um, monkey could baby monkey could nurse. And then the second group was uh, they had a pillow on a metal um, rack, I should say, not a cage. And so they could still get the food and some sort of comfort through the pillow. And the third group, of course, was the actual mother with the babies. And the um, group that had just a metal rack, they were just going, jumping off the walls and you know, losing mm -hmm. it. And, and then the second group, they were sort of neutral, but they really didn't have much um, personality, I would say. And the third yeah. group were, were perfectly normal. So that's yeah. something that technology has taken away from us, has taken away that connection that we feel to one another. 
Yeah, in many ways. Uh, very much. Yeah, very much so. So, uh, you know, I, I really would like to, you know, before we delve into um, the the struggles and everything, would I, I'd like for you to first talk a little bit about who John is or who John was, um, you know, the mm-hmm. essence of him. Who, who was he? Um, he was an extremely bright and animated child and a young man, and he he touched a lot of people, and um, just they were enamored with him from teachers to other students. He was at the Montessori school when he was two. He was helping one girl with separation anxiety and getting her settled, and he just he looked after people. He was the caretaker, and um, and he also he just had he made everybody laugh. And the pictures I have of him as a child, he's the one jumping up for joy and biggest smile on his face. And I wrote somewhere in the book that of all the the pictures, if you were to look through them and try and pick out a child that might later take their life, he would be the absolute last choice just because he has so much, you know, vibrancy. And and that that was part of my mistake too, of not realizing that somebody who um, could take their life would be so vibrant. Uh, Just, but you think Robin Williams and Anthony Bourdain, there are a lot of people out there in Kate Spade who, who we don't think of as being suicidal, but a lot of times that the empathy and the comedy hide, you know, what's the pain that's underneath. Yeah. So, um, yeah. There was, and he there was, was, he was one, I was say there was one line in your book that right up exactly about that, that just stuck out to me. And mm-hmm. that was that happy faces in some cases mask deep sorrow. And it's yeah. like, you yeah. know, and that's the kind of thing that we oh, you just mentioned Robin Williams, you know, the kind of thing that, um, that we really just um, that's a, maybe makes it a, such a surprise, you know, because it just seems so. Yeah. Um, you know what we see isn't always what the full picture of what's going on inside, exactly. Yeah. And and also the the empathy, you know, and I I think that a lot of people try to help others because they understand. And John was. He would even, I always think of myself as a good person, but I think we're all, we all make judgments at times. And in the few cases when I would make judgments against somebody because they had done something bad, he would make me think and stop and say, you know, you don't know what's happened mm. in their life. And mm. so he was always very good about understanding that we're all complex creatures and our interactions with one another can sometimes be unsettling and we might jump to conclusions about the person that we are with whom we're interacting and based upon whatever behavior they might display but there's usually a reason behind every behavior and and he was really good about calling me out and even when I thought I was being you know fairly good Mm -hmm. he would call me out on it so you know he was incredibly kind incredibly um, bright and and wise beyond his years and he taught me a lot in the in the 24 years that he was here and about being a better person, even though I thought I was a pretty good person, but he's he's taught me to even be yeah. better. And so I've I've made a lot of effort to reach out to to other people that I might normally not have connected with, just because you know I hear his voice in my head saying this is a person who might need a little you know mood boosting. So yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, you know, and you you have to wonder too, you know with uh, people who have that high uh, level of compassion or empathy um, that um, sometimes it's difficult. I mean, it's a wonderful way to be able, you know, for someone to be able to uplift like like he Mm -hmm. did. Um, But also sometimes for some people who are in that position, it's hard to 
to shake that um, the feeling, you know, the kind yeah, of take so it that's on. A balance. Yeah, you have to strike the balance because sometimes, I mean, I find this happens with, with myself as well, that you you become so involved with other people's problems trying to help them, and it feels good to be able to help people. But sometimes there's a point where there's not much you can do to help them, and you get drawn into the pain. And uh, right. so, but you should, you know, for me, I can't step away because I'm not clinically depressed. So for me, I will always be there, but it can sometimes take me back to, a moment and I will have to sort of take a pause and that pause might just be a few hours, but it's yeah. something that I recognize that happens and you have to be aware of it. But for somebody who's clinically depressed, when you're helping other people and not, I think I will at least voice when I'm having problems too. And so I can share my pain with other people who are in pain. Whereas John would not, he would absorb other people's okay. pain and mm-hmm. wasn't really good about sharing what was going on with him. Um, and didn't know how to talk about it, and so that's that's another issue in the in the book that I try and bring up, and that people we need to normalize the conversation with our children when we talk to them about sex and drugs and alcohol, but we need to talk to them about uh, depression and thoughts of suicide, and right. because that is something that a lot of a lot of people are feeling, and if we don't talk to them about it, we don't normalize it, and we make them feel alienated because, and I know John felt alienated because I didn't understand. And because right. we gathered other people wouldn't understand. But if we can make people realize, no, this can happen. And if it's happening to you as your parent, I want to know and I want to try and get you help. And that's something that will make a huge difference if we can normalize that conversation. I agree very much so. And now with John, um, did when, when did you first recognize that, you know, that the, the depression or, you know, that the that darker view um, was there. I mean, what, what, what kind of well, I mean, raised your he was, awareness he was about 17. that? Well, he was 17 and he was, um, I, I, again, you know, I just, I heard it. Um, it was from his, the, the dean of students where he was at school who called me to tell me that they were putting John on a suicide watch and that there, that he was, had had a breakdown and he was going to school in another state and, and I had to go. I couldn't get there that night because of the snowstorm, so I had to pick him up the next morning. And they, uh, but they hadn't called me that night. And he just was sobbing on the phone, and something had happened, and I really wasn't sure what had happened. But it kind of blew my mind because I didn't, you know, I'd known him to be um, really a dedicated student and a model student, model, um, you know, peer to his mm-hmm. friends at school. And uh, so I just. I didn't understand what was happening. And I thought that the school was overreacting. I thought John was getting over emotional and I, I didn't just mm-hmm. understand it, but I had to take him to National Hospital and they gave him a psych evaluation and they had him handcuffed to a stretcher and were ready to take him, you know, into, to be um, committed into the hospital. And I just, I I'd listened to this book. I listened to NPR for an author who mm-hmm. interviewed with an author, um, Nora Vincent's uh, Voluntary Madness. And she talked about having been voluntarily committed to different types of psychiatric hospitals, private and public, and and each time the care was the same, just talk and medication, but the talk was Mm -hmm. kind of benign and, you know, how do you feel and what do you want to do? And there really wasn't Mm -hmm. much progress other than giving them a lot of medication. And John's father had had the same experience, and I'd seen that firsthand, what happened to him. Mm -hmm. He just simply became addicted to um, medications. 
so prescribed prescription medications. And so I didn't, I didn't want to have that for John and John's looking at me saying, get me out of here. Don't let them do this mm-hmm. to me. So I just listened to my gut and I, I said, I'm sorry, I can't let you do this to my son. And he went into a partial program and, but I still, I saw the notes that he was, uh, had suicidal ideology, but I, I really thought that he was still being dramatic. I didn't say mm-hmm. that to him, thank God, <laughs> but that's right. what I was feeling right. inside because I just kept thinking, we'll get past this. He'll get treated and it will be over with. But that's the thing about clinical depression. It's not, it's chronic. It's not something that you get over, you know, it does come back. And that's what I failed to understand. Yeah. You know, I mean, when, you know, you have someone who um, would be typically happy and upbeat and that kind of thing. And then you have the, you see that, that downside aspect that, um, you, I mean, I would think it would be natural to to wonder, you know, you know, is is he being dramatic? You know, I mean, what it yeah. can't be that important, you know. So, but um, so now once he's, you know, he, he had that, um, you know, uh, when, when you got him from from the the hospital, what what kind of, did he do? Other treatments? What what kind of things? No, you know, I, he he didn't want to, well, he didn't want to take medication. And I think because he saw what happened to his dad. Right. And, and I'd also seen um, how difficult it is for medication as had he, I think um, how difficult it is for medication to actually work. Um, And as um, the Dr. Nemroff who works for the American foundation for suicide prevention had said on an NPR interview that, um, a medication works fifty uh, percent of the time, but they still don't know if it prevents people from taking their lives. And when pe- mm. and you can also have adverse changes in your system because, for whatever reason, that the, what a drug that's been working might later not work yeah. for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, so, and that can have that can have devastating consequences as well. And particularly when you're a teenager, it's it can be extremely dangerous because your hormone levels are changing and serotonin levels are changing. So what is working one day might not work, you know, several weeks mm-hmm. later, or you have a two week period before the, the medicine starts to, you know, balance itself out. And in the meantime, something can, can get worse before they, they get better. And I've heard plenty of stories of, of teenagers who took their lives after being put on medication. So yeah. it's a very scary yeah. process. And, so I don't, John didn't want to consider medication. I was never going to push that having witnessed what happened to his dad. Right. And um, after he had the treatment, I, you know, I was just working and busy and I thought he was fine and was kept thinking that this would go away. And that mm-hmm. was my biggest mistake of thinking that it would go away, but it would go away for a time or it seemed to because he'd get happier and he yeah. went through some very good periods and, but then would come back and, each time it came back, it was terrifying, but I think I just was too, I couldn't accept that this would, that this would be an accident. Right. Mm-hmm. No. So I yeah. wish I had, yeah. I tried to push therapists, but he didn't want to see a therapist. Yeah. And that's not uncommon for men, particularly that they don't want to, right. or boys, boys and men, I would say, aren't comfortable talking with therapists, but there are therapists that will tell you if somebody doesn't want to talk to a therapist, they shouldn't have to. So, you know, my, my feeling on this is, is that it's ultimately their journey. You know what I mean? It's, it's the, 
um, you know, all of all of the things that happen, you know, and, and the choices and just it, it's their journey, you know, and right. whatever kinds of things come about. So, you know, as far as um, no, it's not no judgment, you know, in, in any kind yeah, of action, yeah. you know, that, that, um, uh, yeah. So, um, now one of the things that, um, you, we, we kind of talked a little bit about before we came on the show, um, and you mentioned yep. the idea of, um, you know, not using the phrase committing suicide. Now, right. I had that it's, uh, you know, and I had never heard of anything, you know, um, to the contrary, a different perspective of that. So would you mind sharing kind of the, sure. the skinny of that? Yeah, I had sure. No um, idea. <laughs> that, well, when John first died, I, you know, I, I did, uh, I did not say on my face, I put a Facebook post out the night he died when I came back from the hospital after getting the confirmation because I didn't want to, you know, sort of numb. And I thought, well, I'll just put this out there. And I said, tonight, my youngest son took his life. Please love, you know, your, um, love each other, be kind. And depression is a terrible illness, something to that effect. But so I did not put that he committed suicide, but I saw started to become part of these Facebook support groups for uh, mothers who have lost a child by suicide and who died by suicide mm. and learned very quickly that um, you don't say commit suicide because crimes are committed and in the old school thinking mm. suicide was a crime was and a crime. it was yeah. um, looked down upon but now with a new understanding we want to shift the way we think about it and language is a very powerful tool as we know um, but when you say commit suicide you're assuming that the person did this to every well yes it hurts other people but mm-hmm. John mm-hmm. would say periodically I'm just trying really hard not to kill myself and um, suicidologists, which is a um, profession of people who's doctors, who, who psychiatrists who study suicide, will say that um, people, uh, the will to survive is so strong that people do not want to die. And suicide is the unfortunate result of an incredibly painful disease. And you think about it, your brain is command central. So it is a very painful disease. They have a term that Dr. Edwin Schneidman, who's the founder of suicidology, coined called psych ache, and it's literally an ache of the psyche that causes your life to become unbearable. And people will say that before somebody takes their life, they slip into a state of madness and they they have a distorted sense of self and others. So they are actually not Mm -hmm. thinking about the consequences of, you know, what will mom think or what will, you know, so-and-so think it's just like somebody once said, like um, jumping from a burning building because the smoke is filling or walking through cement that's drying. All you know is that right. you need to escape that pain. And it's so horrible that you can no longer bear it. So yeah. they're, not, they're not doing this to, they don't want to hurt themselves. They don't want right. to hurt other people. And it mm-hmm. takes courage to build up to it. There's usually, you usually have several, but they actually succeed in doing it because it's not something they would ever choose. And then I know John didn't want to die. He was he waited to get his license until he was 18 because he was afraid of being in a, in driving in a car and he wouldn't drive with his friends because he was afraid that, that he'd be in a car accident. So it's not yeah. just this, you know, I don't want to live. It's not a, it isn't a dramatic thing. It's mm. um, an actual illness. And so committing that, just going back to that, it yeah. implies that they are committing crime and far from it. They're in, they're desperate. Right. Name. So, so you know, and, and, and that makes sense, you know, particularly with the history of of 
how suicide was perceived. Now, so if one were to, I mean, to talk about it, because we we want to talk about it. I mean, the idea is is we, you know, as as a family group. So um, how would, what would the appropriate uh, phrasing would be? That someone died by suicide? Yeah, died by suicide is is a, the easiest thing I think to say, but I sometimes say, um, or often say that my son lost his battle to depression, just as somebody okay. lost, mm-hmm. lost their battle to cancer, because it is I said it's a cancer of your brain in a, in a way that takes over and renders mm-hmm. your quality okay. of life impossible. Yeah. Okay. Well, I just you know I, again you know I hadn't heard you know that um, before you know the idea. I'm using the yeah. phrase. Yeah. Oh, and nor had I, as I said when I first, when John first <laughs> so, died. So. Well, well, I learned something learned today, and, and I'm sure many of my listeners today also learned something. Um, yeah. Now, this uh, this what let listeners know. In, in a, a few minutes here, we're going to be taking a short break, and if you want to call in and ask uh, Margie any questions, you can call in at six one nine seven eight nine four three five nine. Or if you're listening live in the chat room and have any questions, feel free to pose them there. Um, Okay, now, um, okay, I understand this. I read it from the introduction that um, John had brother Tim. Um, Now, uh, how, I mean, obviously you can't speak for Tim, but as a parent whose son was going through that struggle with depression, how was that dynamic the sibling dynamic from, from a, as a parent's point, from a parent point of view. Um, it was, well, it was difficult. Tim was not living at home at the time. He was in California okay. and mm-hmm. we're in Massachusetts. Um, but it was a hard because it was his only sibling and, and right. um, they were close, but they definitely had different, you know, interests. So it was hard um, to accept for, for Tim to realize when I, I was tell, calling him and saying, I think John might be suicidal and his birthday, John's birthday was one month and one day before his, his death. And I thought that he was, um, he had attempted that day and mm-hmm. was, he had moved out of the house, but he, um, into an apartment with some friends, but he kept coming home because he was in a really dark place and was um, participating in a hospital program. And he, he uh, was alone in his apartment, and nobody could reach him and he wasn't he had blocked his Facebook wall and he wasn't responding to any phone calls. So I was mm-hmm. really concerned about concerned about it and called Tim and asked if I should call um in um nine one one and he said, you know, no, if you send them send people there and they break the door down if he wasn't thinking about t- you know, taking his life, he will <laughs> if you if you do that so you know, it was a conundrum. Yeah. But um Tim yeah. thought I was uh, he thought I was exaggerating this time and he said, you've just got to relax. And, and then when I called him the night that John died, he he just completely lost it, of course. And, and um, he struggled because he couldn't, he needed me to be strong. He was of me. It was a sort of a tough situation for him because he wanted me to be strong, but he also was protective of me if, if I re- we did Thanksgiving the week after John died. I don't know why, but I just <laughs> I would have my, my whole family was here. And my sister yeah. started to cry and Tim yelled at her, and he loves her, but he yelled at her and said, this is mom's time. <laughs> Tim, it's uh, not, not about that. So um, uh, and I, yeah. I don't know, it's just, it's been tough. To, and then he lost his dad eight months later to cancer. So um, that quite unexpectedly, he had had cancer, but had been in remission, gallbladder cancer for four years. And, 
So he, he went very quickly. Wow. And that that was something that he had a hard time processing when his father called him to tell him that he didn't have long to live. It, it He didn't get out to yeah. see him until about a day before he passed away because he couldn't process it. He was still so stuck in, in first year of grief, which is the hardest, yeah. I think. And second year, it's more it's more um, visceral because the first year, you're sort of numb and trying to get through those first milestones. Um, right. And then the second year, you process it more, but you, you, you're coming to terms with it. But that first year, just when you're still trying to absorb it to have something else, another right. great loss was right. really, really hard. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a major shift. I mean, I mean it's just like a, yeah. each piece of the puzzle is, is, you know, is, is not there. Yeah. So, um, well, yeah. You put, it puts life in perspective, though. You know, we go yeah. about our busy days oh, thinking, okay, I've got to do this, and I have to go to the supermarket and never get this report in or whatever it is that you're doing in your right. life, and then you lose someone in your immediate family, and you realize, wait a minute, I, I should have spent more time telling my loved ones I love them. I should have spent more time hugging right. my loved ones and hugging other people that need a hug or whatever it is, but just yeah. you know, connect with one another and love each other and be good to one another yeah. and don't waste time on silly things and material things. And, <laughs> and some, exactly. some material things, I get it, but I mean, it's, it's more about the time we spend no. with each other than you know, the car we drive. I mean, that's my opinion, but... I agree. no, I, I agree. I agree completely. I mean, it's you know the <laughs> things that seem to live on are the the, the relationships, the bonds, you know those right. special moments that happened. Um, everything else yep. doesn't, <laughs> doesn't go. So I mean, it's yeah. You know. it's, it's a, so it's I mean, you decide important. how much how much do you really want to go take with you? You know, you want to take a whole lot of love or you know a whole lot of things. Yeah, that aren't yeah. Go, so. Well, that's my dad used to say there are no luggage racks on a hearse. <laughs> so. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Um, okay, well, we're, we're going to take a, a quick break, and uh, we'll be back in, in about uh, 90 seconds. Everyone, stay tuned. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us and hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,400 shows we have had over the past nine years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, photography, a wellness store, and self-publishing assistance. Our show is a free podcast on iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on many social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms at the top of our homepage. Our website, byteradio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone, thank you for staying with us. Again, today, my special guest is Margaret Thompson. We're talking about her new memoir, Finding Color in the Darkness, Losing My Son to Bipolar Disorder. Um, her book is available from Amazon.com, and as you may have heard in the first uh, part of the show, I was already 
tearing up on the first page. So it's definitely a, a very uh, wonderful book. So um, also, uh, you can connect with Muggy on Facebook. Um, she has a page, Finding Color in the Darkness. Okay, so with that, we're back. Muggy? Hi. <laughs> uh, hello. Okay. Uh, now, in part of the, the grieving process, um, I understand that you contacted psychics and seers or mediums about making contact um, with John. Um, now, I've had mediums on my show, and I've been around that for like 30 years. So I, you know, and I know people of varying degrees of um, connectivity, let's say. And yeah. So, um what was what kind of led you to explore that and, and what overall what was your experience about that um well it was before john died you know i always believed that we have a soul i think i hope okay. a lot of people believe that because you can explain yeah. how your heart stops or any major organ but we know that we all have different emotions and we all have different feelings and responses to other people and events in our life so i'd always thought well when you're body dies what happens to your when your body stops working what happens to the soul and then have to go somewhere so that belief was always there but I never had a reason to pursue that necessarily and I'd heard my share of ghost stories like anybody else growing up and (laughs) Uh you know listen to them with you know as much eagerness as possible but um, when losing a child you you really have to find that connection I think because you you it's so painful otherwise to go on and I really don't, yeah. it, was, it was a huge part of my healing process to believe that, that John is still with me. And I've had, um, not just with mediums, but I've had experiences that have led me to, that have confirmed my belief that he is very much with me. And I know other people would think that's just craziness. But um, <laughs> I remember there was a, a time when I was um, getting ready to cross a street in Boston, a one-way street, the light had turned red for the oncoming traffic and go for the pedestrians and this is actually in the in the book but um i just crossed without looking and i felt a wind force not not human hands but a wind force mm-hmm. propel me back with great force up onto the backwards up onto the curb without tripping and then a car honked and there was a car that had run the red light exactly where i'd been standing um just a couple seconds before and when i got into um into my car later to to drive home, I heard um, Tupac's song, Dear Mama, You Are Appreciated. <laughs> I just thought, okay, this is, thank you, John. Um, but um, there are little things like, song yeah, and there are other little things that, um, yeah. and you hear his voice yeah. in my head sometimes, as I'm finishing yeah. one thought, he'll say something that's you know, just his particular sense of humor, because he had a very quick wit, and um, so I feel very connected to him, but I've had readings and several of them that I started having you have to wait I was told three months until the person passes because you have to go through their transition process on the other side of the veil as they call it mm-hmm. and um, you know I think it took a while for me to get a good reading honestly because there's three components there's the medium if they're you know a good medium right. you want to do some research on that because there are plenty of people that will just give you the oh he loves you oh, you know, oh <laughs> the, the generic stuff that yep. isn't specific uh, and yes. um, uh-huh. but there's also the spirit, the connection that they have with, with the medium, and then right. um, they have there's the uh, where you are. And I found the best readings because I'm a talker, and they say don't feed the medium. The best readings are right. when you right. calm yourself ahead of time, meditating and focusing on something, and 
um, and then go into it and just confirm or deny and maybe give slight, right. you know, assist as needed. But you, right. you really have to sit back and let them guide you through it. And my most successful reading was I was holding my son's prayer card, and it was last July. And on the prayer card, there's a picture of uh, my son when he was t- um, about two, a toddler holding a black lab who was then a puppy that we had. And then um, on the same, um, the other picture on the same side of the prayer card is of him at 19 holding his, um, what do you call this, baby girl, his husky, his Zoe. Mm-hmm. And so, and on the other side are Tuesdays with Murray quotes. And at that point, I, the book was not published, and I was thinking about using some of the Tuesdays with Murray quotes because it was one of John's favorite books um, to start off, to head off certain sections. In the, and so I'd been doing my meditation, holding the prayer card, and I had a phone interview with a medium in Arizona, and I was at this point in Maine. And so she couldn't mm-hmm. see anything, obviously, in a phone interview. And she right. she gave very detailed information leading up to John's death of everything that happened and everything that was going on in his life. And, um, and of course, my grandmother came through. Usually, other people come through, and that's happened before. Right. She said, mm-hmm. she's, "She's not. You're not here to see to speak to her. You're here to speak to a young man or your son." And she knew all the details. And then she said, "And he's with a black lab and spirit, and they're so happy together. And um, but you're taking care of his dog. She has blue eyes. Is she a husky?" And then later in the reading, she said, wait a minute, those dogs I mentioned earlier, you're holding something in your hand right now that has a picture of your son with, at different ages with those two dogs mm. I mentioned. Yeah. Oh, and there's something written on the back of that, uh, whatever <laughs> it is that you're holding, that you're thinking about using right. somehow. And he thinks that's a great idea. So that just, just was mind-blowing to me that somebody right. could come through with that detail of what I was holding and what I was thinking. So. It's just a, really yeah. Impressive. Well, you know, and I'm and, and I have encountered people with such, you know, that kind of accuracy. And now, mm-hmm. if you are open-minded, an open-minded person yeah. would say, "Now, this is just too freaky <laughs> to be a coincidence." Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean that it's like one of those you can't make that that up. You know, and you, you know, and see my my. <laughs> Yeah, my degree was like is in psychology, my bachelor's, and, and I love statistics. And it was like one of my favorite things that really kind of opened me up is, is it statistically significant? Is it the point where there is something right. beyond what you see that, that's making it happen? So, um, well, that's great. You know, and one of the things that, that I've um, found is that um, in many cases, like the – um, with you and John, that when a, a child passes, um, there's especially if it's unexpected and that kind of thing. It, it just seems that that the bond is is intensified, I guess, in a way. Yeah, it is intense. Um, I think it is intensified. That's a good way to put it. Yep. Yeah, it's, uh, and, it's because you have to be because you don't have the distractions of. Of, I think your your adult child or growing child wanting their independence, um, some you know you, you have a direct line with them in another way. So, in some yeah. ways, it is definitely stronger. You know, yeah, obviously you, know, you can't you miss that physical presence. Yeah. There's no replacing that the hug and the you know <laughs> the scent no, of no, all no, that you know and the sound of the laughter. But um, yeah. you have to look for the positives and um, yeah, it doesn't always yeah. work. I mean, but most know, of the you, time, it does. Yeah, you go. You go to you know experience, relive those memories as as, as close as possible. But also in in this particular case, now you both are um, helping op- opening up um, the horizons of each other. You know, in your respective yeah, areas. Yeah. I agree. I think so. Mm. 
Wow. Yeah. I mean, um, now, one of the things that um, you talk about in, in your book, too, is, and one, I think it's an important um, perspective or facet, you know, when it comes to grief, and particularly if someone has lost a person to suicide or cancer, you know, or you know, any, any tragic, you know, yeah. Uh, happening, you know, that particularly fast happening. Um, that, that sometimes there's a sense of blame. Um, either some, mm-hmm. either the people are, that are left around either blame themselves or blame someone else or blame the person who died. So, what have you learned, you know, with John's passing about blame? Um, it's very it's an interesting question, particularly as it pertains to suicide, because there are a lot of pointed fingers and and I think my pointed finger was was at myself, <laughs> not at others. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But I've seen um, but I've gotten I've come to terms with that and and gotten over it, I think. But the um, I've seen on the the sites that I'm a part of that are for suicide loss of child people who will blame their um, their um, sons or daughters, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, um, and right. these horrible names that they say to, about those people, blame their ex-husband or blame um, their other child. I, it's, it's crazy the things that people, or they'll blame the child that, that died and how angry they right. are. That, that's yeah. rare, actually. That's more rare, but that unfortunately oh. does happen. And 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 I've tried to address them when people try and blame the child. Um, I try to address that one because that's, that's I think, unfair. Yeah. Even though the child's dead, it's still no one would take their lives on their, you know, to just to get even with somebody. I mean, I, right. I yeah. it does, probably yeah. does happen. I'm sure it has happened, but it's extremely yeah. rare. More often than not, yeah. it's because of the, the psychic that I referred to earlier. So I could I, I've been asked many times if I was angry at John. Never was my answer. Never ever would I be angry at him for doing this. What my greatest heartache is knowing how much pain he was in, and that he felt that that was his only way to end right. his pain. That's the biggest you know heartache I have. But it did take a long time for me to go back and forth of, you know, if I'd only done this. And we were home that night, and I hadn't you know I called out to him a few times, and I didn't respond to him because I thought he would. Um, he, he wanted to stop and get a bunch of beer on the way home, and I knew he was distraught that night, and he had not been opening up, and he finally was. And I misread that, that this was a good sign that he was opening up and that he wanted the beer to drink it off. And so mm-hmm. I, I thought, just let him be. And so it took me a long time to, to forgive myself for not responding. And my therapist mm-hmm. said to me, you know, if you'd gone up there and seen stop, you know seen him, he probably would have hid it from you and you would have found him the next day and if he if it mm. didn't happen that mm. night it would have happened yeah. another night because he yeah. was in so much torment and I can blame myself for not trying to to uh, engage with the program that he was in because he had released privacy rights to me medical privacy rights so I could have and um mm. you know intervened somewhat I stayed busy at work because it was my coping mechanism and right. um didn't you know didn't bother to do that so that was another source of guilt but the bottom line is, as you said, these are our own lives. It's our journey. And he wouldn't, right. he did not want to take medication. There are not, and that's my issue with it, with the medical health care that we have in this country, is that there really aren't effective treatments to treat severe um, mental health issues and, and particularly bipolar disorder, because that's what John suffered from bipolar disorder. And 15% of people with bipolar disorder take their lives. 
So that's a, you know, a big number. And if you have a, other factors, as John did in his life, that add to that, it makes it increasingly difficult. And it's often drug resistant. So even if he did want to take medication, um, there's no guarantee that that would have helped. But things that do help are some of the alternative treatments that are available. Mm-hmm. And there's a few of them, but they're really not accessible and they're not, they're not widely available. And if you can afford to get into a certain facility that um, treats it, it does, it's hard to have the beds that are there. And you do need to fall into monitor a patient 24 seven while they are suicidal and to get them a treatment that will, will work. So um, that's the, you know, the problem that I have is that we're not treating this mental health issue as seriously as we treat other, you know, severe um, health issues that can be deadly and terminal. Right. And yeah. um, I, I think we just overlook, like, it's the same old system. It's the efficacy of the system is broken and yeah. um, we need to change that. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. You know, the, the one, one difficulty with, uh, with certain types of mental illness is that masking ability sometimes, you know, that makes it yeah. hard for people to see. Um, and, yeah. you know, and the, you know, as, as far, you know, as um, treatments and, and, you know, manageability, I mean, it, it's one of those things that I think people have to be first aware of, of the issue and then like they right. have a place to go to, you know, to be able to, right. and that's, to have it the addressed. campaign is to build the awareness and first, and then but also to have the, definitely the, the facilities that can um, have the alternative treatments and they can, those alternative treatments can be everything from um, gardening and painting classes and a mm. calm facility because they're, they do when you go into the psych wards, um, what's terrifying, and John was um, hospitalized overnight only once um, when he was 20, and they and I'd seen this with his dad when he was hospitalized as well, that they put you into the same psych wards where you have volatile patients. So, and when I mm. say volatile, I mean these are people who are screaming out and threatening things oh, and yeah. obscene, vulgar things, and and um, it's scary to be with those people and. Um, and not that they don't deserve mental health care services, but those are the, the no, questions they ask one. you when you, right. yeah, they, well, the question they ask is, are you, do you consider yourself a danger to yourself or to anyone else? And John was considered a danger to himself, as are right. many other depressed patients. But when you put those depressed patients who are only a danger to themselves in with other patients who are a danger to others, that's right. terrifying. <laughs> You're taking an already difficult yeah. situation that's traumatizing and just amping that up the worst thing you can do to somebody and so a lot of people take their lives to to, to prevent having to go back into those sort of environments mm-hmm. so we need right. to separate the treatment facilities and the care for the depending on the patient's needs um, number one and number two is to make that accessible but they so it can be you know the, uh, the art therapy type stuff and gardening but beyond that there are other um, they have uh, a modernized electric shock therapy for bipolar disorder yeah. that can help and other medical IV treatments that that have worked and have also been helpful for treating PTSD in um, in veterans. They've been using other treatments, which um, are, are we've been doing d- different studies at John Hopkins University and Mass General. So there are available places, but they're just not, as I said, there aren't enough uh, beds or availability yeah. for it. Yeah, yeah, it is it is uh, definitely a, a huge need now. What what do you hope the, the readers will take away from reading 
find any color in the dark? Um, the most, I mean, that, that was also one part of the, the message to, to um, you know, call to arms to, to build awareness for the importance of funding and um, um, getting the message out there that mental health issues are every bit as important as medical health issues because they're one and the same. Um, but and because there are chemical imbalances in the brain, so it's not just an emotional thing, and that people, some people cannot just choose to be happy. So I think that's the number one message. Number two is for the people that suffer to let them know that that there are people like me who used to think formerly that happiness was a choice that they could simply get over mm-hmm. it. And thank God I never said that to John. Um, right. Now I, I want to be their advocate to say, I hear you, I see you. And finally, knowing that, just whenever you see somebody, don't make the assumptions, don't make the judgments. Um, Anybody can have anything going on in their life, whether it's just that they lost their car keys or they lost their car keys and they have severe depression or they have, you know, an ill parent that they're by. We never know what anybody's going through in life. So it's just... To be kind to one another is so important because when when you have somebody who's depressed, and we we all know if we don't have clinical depression, when we're not in a good place, even if we're in a good place, and somebody says something unkind, it can change your mood drastically. Mm-hmm. But when mm-hmm. you suffer from depression and somebody says something unkind, it can be the last thing that's said to that person because they might be on the verge of taking their life. So just please, <laughs> whenever you're dealing right. with people, you know, smile, be nice, be polite. And you know, and let the little things go, and and be good to each other, love one another. Yeah, and we're all, yeah. We're all the well, same yeah. species here on this planet, and during our time here, the best thing we can do is to to be good to one another. I I agree. I think. I mean, I think that's a kind of why we're here is to learn how to do that unconditionally. Yeah. <laughs> so unconditionally, yeah. right? Just to get free, along. Free of judgment, <laughs> as as I seem to hear. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, well, this has really been um, a treat speaking with you. Um, I, I really so applaud you putting it, your your words down for people to to see and share. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure, and really enjoyed speaking with you as well. Great, you very much. Okay, everyone. Again, today my very special guest has been Margaret Thompson. Her book is called Finding Color in the Darkness, Losing My Son to Bipolar Disorder. Uh, Her book is available from Amazon, so just look up Margaret Thompson. Um, Finding Color, it'll pop right up there. And she also has a Facebook page, Finding Color in the Darkness, and feel free to join her there. So everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. To follow our show, visit our homepage at byteradio.me and select the platform you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.